Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. President Biden has a new chief of staff, Jeff Zients. He was Biden's COVID czar, and before that, he was a top economic advisor in the Obama administration. Zients replaces Ron Klain, who for many is the very model of a chief of staff. Prior to running the White House, Klain had many of the most powerful positions in Washington, including chief of staff to two vice presidents. To discuss these two men, and the role of White House Chief of Staff, I'm joined by author Chris Whipple. He wrote what is perhaps the definitive account of the job and its occupants. It's called Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. Now he's out with a book about the first two years of the Biden administration. It's called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. So before we talk about the two men and the passing of the baton from Ron Klain to Jeff Zients. Can you explain to folks, based on your research and expertise, how important is the chief of staff? If a chief of staff is terrific, does that help a lot? If the chief of staff is not up to the task, does that doom a presidency? Give us some sense of scale. You know, Preet, it's hard to overstate the importance of the White House chief of staff. There's a reason why the subtitle of my book, The Gatekeepers, was uh, how the White House chiefs of staff define every presidency. I, you, you could say that, and I, I argue in the book, that uh, there would have been no Reagan revolution without James A. Baker III, his quintessential chief of staff. I think that Bill Clinton might, might very well have been a one-term president, if not for his chief of staff, Leon Panetta, who came in and really turned uh, the, the Clinton White House around. So, you know, the White House chief is not only the president's most important closest advisor. But at the end of the day, he's the person who executes the president's agenda and maybe most importantly, tells him what he doesn't want to hear. How important to the job is time management of the president? It's critical. There's a reason why I called the book The Gatekeepers. This goes all the way back to um, Richard Nixon and H.R. Haldeman, um, his infamous chief of staff who was accused of uh, walling Nixon off uh, from information and people he should see. The truth was the opposite. He was creating time and space for the president to think, which is really important. 
And it's going to be all the more important for an octogenarian president running in a bruising re-election campaign. I think Jeff Zients, the, the new chief, is going to, first of all, have to make sure that only the people who have to see the president see him, conserve his his energy, uh, make sure he gets his rest, and uh, make sure that campaigning doesn't interfere with governing. What's the harder job? Is it White House chief of staff? Or is it whoever the top communications director spokesperson is? Well, I may be <laughs> I may be biased uh, since I've spent so much time studying the chief. Suffice it to say that when when uh, when his successors call him for advice, as they invariably do, James A. Baker III, who again was Reagan's chief, always says the same thing. He says, "Congratulations, you've got the worst blanking job in government." <laughs> What's the average tenure? For a chief of staff to a president, it's like five minutes. It's yeah, five minutes. It's it's actually about eighteen months, and and that's just so. So Ron Klain uh, exceeded the average. In fact, served longer than any other Democrats president's first chief. He's very proud of that fact. Nowhere near as long as Andy Card, the record holder, who lasted five years and change, but would be the first to tell you that he stayed way too long. What quality did Andy Card have that he could do that job three times longer than almost everyone else? Well, you know, he, he again, it was probably a mistake for, for Card to have stayed that long. You, you, I don't think you can do that job really effectively for more than a couple of years, as Klein has discovered. And certainly you could argue that Andy Card was in over his head with some of the powerful players uh, who really exercised power in that White House, including Dick Cheney. <laughs> in yeah. fact, Dick Cheney likes to say that the White House Chief of Staff has more power than the vice president. That's true, except when Cheney was vice president. <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting point you make. Is there anything that the public should be concerned about when you have a position in government in the White House that is unelected, that doesn't go through any vetting process outside of the president and the White House itself? Too much power vested in a chief of staff, or is that just the nature of things? I think that's the nature of things. I, you know, I don't think it's terribly concerning or should be because, in effect, he's an extension, he or she, someday there will be a female chief. The chief is an extension of the president. He serves at the president's pleasure. So he doesn't wield any independent power. We have not had a female chief of staff? Never. That's a little bit nuts. It is. It's long overdue. And, uh, you know, interestingly, Preet, in my book, I tell the story about going to see Ron Klain at, at nine months into the Biden presidency. It was a low point. Biden had just gone through months of futility trying to get Build Back Better passed. He went off to Glasgow without anything to show for it. Uh, I'll ultimately get to the point here about a female chief. But anyway, Klain was thinking about resigning. And I said, really, who do you think would your replacement might be? And I mentioned a couple of names, and he said, oh, I have a feeling Joe Biden might want to appoint the first woman. Well, here we are two, two years later. That turns out not to be the case. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's way overdue. You know, just as a measure of how significant a job it is, there's one chief of staff to former President Obama, Rahm Emanuel. Can you remind people what Rahm Emanuel's job was before he agreed to become chief of staff? Well, yeah, Rahm, there's a great uh, story I tell in, in The Gatekeepers. It's the opening chapter of how Rahm 
was uh, Rahm, of course, had been in Congress. Uh, he was in line to be the first Jewish Speaker of the House. He didn't particularly, nobody goes looking to become chief of staff. Nobody applies for the job. <laughs> uh, Emmanuel um, went and he met with uh, all the living or many of the living former White House chiefs of staff came to kind of show him the keys to the men's room, as Dick Cheney put it. Cheney, who had been Ford's 34-year-old White House chief, they're all gathered around this table. And um, Ken Duberstein says to Emmanuel, never forget that when you open your mouth, it's not you, but the president who's speaking. To which Rahm immediately replied, oh, blank. (laughs) I don't think he said blank. The famously profane uh, Rahm Emanuel. It's also a funny dynamic, and let's talk about Ron Klain for a bit. You know, I worked in the Senate for a while, and I will tell you, and you must have seen this, and I'm sure you've written about it, you know, members of the Senate and the House and leadership took some umbrage sometimes at how they they thought they had to treat and address or be addressed by the White House chief of staff and famously among staffers, I won't say who the senator was, was a senator who was sort of annoyed that he had to deal with a quote unquote mere staffer. Can you explain that dynamic? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's one reason why, I mean, it's it, chiefs of staff by and large are never the most popular people on Capitol Hill because one of the primary responsibilities is to tell people, no, uh, you no, you cannot see the president today. No, he's not going to champion this bill or that bill. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower is Chief of Staff Sherman Adams was known as the abominable no man. <laughs> that's uh, a pretty good. That's a pretty good nickname. And so that's why, as as Jim Baker likes to tell people, that's why the White House Chief of Staff walks around with a target on his front and on his back. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. So let's talk about Ron Klain. Can you give him a grade, or can you assess him in his effectiveness, uh, generally speaking, and specifically describe his relationship? with the principal, Joe Biden? Yeah. You know, there's a reason why great White House chiefs of staff are hard to come by. And it's because it's a very rare skill set, which which Ron Klain had, which is White House experience. He'd worked for nine, count them, nine previous Democratic chiefs. Uh, he had knowledge of Capitol Hill and relationships there. He had political savvy. He had managerial acumen. He had a world-class temperament. And not least, maybe maybe most importantly, he had a three decades long relationship with the boss. And what that enables a White House chief to do is tell him what he doesn't want to hear, which is, again, the most important uh, thing a chief can do. So only the great ones have all of those skills. And Jim Baker would be one, Leon Panetta, another. Certainly, uh, you just have to put Ron Klain in their company. Your description made me think about the succession of Trump chiefs of staff. Did Trump ever have a chief of staff who had the ability to tell the boss what he didn't want to hear? No, he never did. Not one. Not one of them. Uh, you know, I think Kelly, John Kelly, his uh, second chief, uh, tried uh, and ultimately failed. And um, Kelly famously predicted when he when he quit that he said that if you were point a yes man to replace me, you will be impeached. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Twice. Yeah. When Mick Mulvaney became his chief, uh, that was the first impeachment. And the second was under Mark Meadows. 
Mark Meadows is the chief of staff Trump wanted all along. Uh, he, the ultimate sycophant. Uh, I describe him in my book as not so much a chief of staff as a kind of glad-handing maitre d'. There was no That's command. That's not very nice, Chris. Well, there was no command or no matter how sketchy or unconstitutional or illegal that Meadows wasn't happy to carry out. So I anointed him. There used to be stiff competition for the worst chief of staff in history, uh, but Meadows owns it now by a country mile. Meadows does. Interesting. Yeah, I think so. It, even more so than Don Regan under Reagan, the sec- his second hapless imperial chief and, and H.R. Haldeman who went to prison. You know, you said a few minutes ago that chiefs of staff to the president tend not to be very popular on Capitol Hill. My sense is they're not always very popular even within the White House, in part because of the, the naysaying aspect of the job. My sense is that Ron Klain was quite popular, if by no other measure than when he announced he's leaving, all sorts of folks came out of the woodwork to say nice things about him. Is that unusual and is that genuine? Yeah, I think it's I think it is genuine. And I think actually, you know, Ron Klain disproves the theory that Richard Nixon espoused many, many years ago that your chief of staff ought to be a pluperfect son of a bitch. H.R. <laughs> uh, Holdeman. What, what does that mean? H.R. Holdeman was that. No, no question about it. Uh, and uh, but Ron Klain was the opposite. And he's proof that you don't have to be a son of a bitch. You can be popular. You can. He had the ability to not only to manage up, namely the president, but to manage down and to and to inspire loyalty and and actually have a, a great working relationship. That's one reason why the the Biden White House was so leak proof and relatively drama free uh, was because of Klain's collegial style. Should a chief of staff have strong substantive and strategic views, or should the chief of staff be a mediator between and among views of other people in the White House and in the cabinet? He can be both as long as he understands his role as chief of staff is not to put his thumb on the scale. Um, So Ron Klain, I think, has strong political views, but I don't think he ever really pressed them. On, on Biden. I think he, he was very much a, um, a by the book. Here are five arguments for option A, and here are five arguments for option B, uh, to which Joe Biden would often say, what about C? What about right. B and a half? <laughs> um, you know, he was very lawyerly. And of course, he is a superb lawyer, Klain, clerked for Byron White, Byron Wizard White. On the Supreme um, Court. Yeah. But he understood that the White House Chief of Staff has to be the classic honest broker of information. Once you start pushing your own agenda, some of the not so great chiefs have done that. The John Sununu's, Sununu under George H.W. Bush, Reagan under Reagan. That never ends well. You know, I, am I right that chiefs of staff were not all that powerful in the past because White Houses outside of the president were not that powerful, that a lot of the power and authority in the federal government was wielded by cabinet members. And there's been criticism of the shift of, of power away from the cabinet and towards the White House. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think you're right, Preet, that it it really began, if you had to pick a place, I, I'd say it really began in the Nixon White House. And the irony about 
H.R. Haldeman is that while he became the poster boy for Watergate and wound up in prison for, for that, ironically, he, he's the guy who wrote the template for the empowered White House chief of staff. And there's just, I think, no question about it, that there really hasn't been any such thing as cabinet government, quote unquote, since the, since the Nixon White House. Power resides in the West Wing. Uh, and that's been true for many, many years. You know, one former chief of staff of some repute you haven't mentioned yet, and I wonder if you have an evaluation of John Podesta. Podesta was a first-rate chief. He could be, <laughs> he had a temper, um, and uh, so he could be a son of a bitch from time to time. But Podesta was, you know, I would, I would say that Podesta was very effective, and, and in fact, that Joe Biden would do well to take a page from the Clinton Podesta playbook when dealing with the current GOP House. Because when Newt Gingrich embarked on his scorched earth political strategy, impeaching Clinton for Monica Lewinsky and setting his hair on fire every day, uh, Clinton basically ignored him. And uh, with Podesta's help as chief of staff, he went about the business of governing. And I think that would be a good model for Biden. So Jeff Zients is coming in. What can we expect from him? How do you think he'll fare? How do you think that will go? Jeff Zients is um, a managerial genius. You know, under Barack Obama, when the, when the Affordable Care website blew up and nobody knew how to fix it, Zients was the guy they called. Dennis McDonough called him and he fixed it. He came in and he ran the coronavirus response team and he got 220 million Americans vaccinated in 100 days. He, he makes government work. He lacks Ron Klain's political savvy and he also does not have the three decade long relationship with the boss. So I think it'll be a challenge, for example. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine Jeff Science sitting down with Joe Biden and second guessing Biden, a, a strongly held political view of Biden's or strategy. But he has to do it. That's why they pay the, uh, the White House chief the big bucks. The big bucks. <laughs> Actually, they don't. I think <laughs> that's another I think, story. I think he has money otherwise. Yes, he does. But he, did he, do you have any understanding of whether he had to have his arm twisted? You said nobody seeks it out. I imagine he didn't seek it out either, but he felt a duty to, to answer the call to service? Yeah, I suspect the latter. Um, although Zeitz is the kind of guy who never shrinks from a managerial challenge, and he may well have uh, happily uh, accepted this offer. I know he was, he was Ron Klein's choice. Uh, I suspect he was Joe Biden's choice. I think they worked very well together against COVID. But again, I think um, you think about what Klain and Biden faced between a once in a century pandemic and a crippled economy and global warming and Vladimir Putin. In a way, you could say now comes the hard part. You know, an octogenarian uh, running for re-election with uh, having to avoid a recession, control inflation, keep NATO unified, a face down MAGA. It's, it's a daunting challenge. Last question for you, Chris, before we let you go. In your new book, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House, tell folks briefly what your major takeaway was in writing that book. Well, you know, I think 
it's a political thriller in three acts, as as was the Biden, as is the Biden presidency, with no ending yet. And the and the first act was this unbelievably fraught transition that almost didn't happen. And I have new reporting about that. The second act was the first year of the presidency, which was a real challenge, um, lots of problems, overshadowed by the botched evacuation from Afghanistan. And the third act was, uh, in my view, the turning point of the Biden presidency, February 24, 2022, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Biden rose to that challenge, rallied NATO and the West, uh, went on to pass uh, a string of successful legislation, defied the odds in the midterms, goes into his third year with real momentum. And I think he was uniquely uh, equipped to, for this moment in history uh, facing down Vladimir Putin and a threat to democracy, not only in Ukraine, but in the West. Chris Whipple, thanks for your contributions to scholarship. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for being on the show. And sorry that you're stuck in a wind tunnel. <laughs> my, my pleasure, Preet. I hope, things, <laughs> hope it warms up. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.